0: The reading is from Mark 3. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribe who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Bezabel by the ruler of the demons, he has cast out demons. And he called them to him, and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself, but that kingdom cannot stand? And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then Then indeed the house can be plundered. Surely I tell you, people will be forgiven in their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they had said, he he has an unclean spirit. Then his mothers and brothers came and stood outside. They They sent him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mothers and brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mothers and brothers? And looking at these, looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my brother, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, sister, and mother. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm gonna pray. Dear God, thank you for today, thank you for everyone who is here. I pray that Andrea will bring a fire sermon and that she will just be able to speak clearly, um, coming from the heart. And thank you for everyone. um, And I hope that they know that they matter and that they deserve everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: amen. 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 Good morning, church. Good morning, how y'all doing this morning? Okay, that was, no. okay, I, I feel it, I feel you. Um, well, good morning, welcome again to Christ City. Uh, my name is Andrea, I am one of the pastors here, and um, particularly if this is one of your first times, first times joining us, whether it's in person or whether you're on YouTube, um, I still find talking to a camera and pointing to a camera weird, but please, I'm welcome, please accept our welcome, and um, we're happy that you're here. A couple of things before we jump in to our scripture this morning, I want to invite you again to one of our Ash Wednesday services. Uh, In a couple of weeks, we are going to have two services at the church office. So uh, our church offices are over on 8th Street, just a couple blocks away. We're going to have a service at 12.15 and a service at 7 p.m. It's going to be the same service that we run twice. Uh, We know that. Uh, You might have a preference on when you come or um, your availability will be different. We'll also have um, an opportunity to come get Ashes and take communion in the morning and we'll let you have some more information about that as soon as we know what it is. So the service at 7 p.m. will be streaming also so you can join us at home um, or with your small group or with other folks if you want to gather in a home. Please do RSVP, like Emma said, we can only hold so many people in the office. Um, we would love to have you all, but uh, we gotta keep the number down, uh, cause we just can't fit everybody in there. So please RSVP. Uh, Ash Wednesday is the start of Lent, and I really hope that uh, you take some time in these next couple of weeks to consider observing Lent in some way, whether that's um, fasting intentionally from something, um, Maybe it's adding a practice, maybe that's what it looks like for you. Um, Maybe it's making a particular commitment to scripture or a particular commitment to service of some kind. Um, But maybe Lent is not the most exciting liturgical season um, for all of us, but I I really deeply believe that God uh, wants to meet us there and work in us. Um, This year we're gonna celebrate Easter in person here in minor for the first time since 2019 right? Right. So exciting. I feel like we're just all going to be crying. I don't know. Um, But I I just, I want to encourage us to enter this Easter season in a spirit of preparation and intention as we look forward to that. So our current series that we're in, in Mark, is going to take us all the way up to Easter. Um, I want to remind you that the reading guide, there is a reading guide that's available. It's really easy, you guys. It's not like you spend an hour a day, it's, you read like a verse and consider one reflection question for five days out of the seven. Um, if you'd like to follow along with the weekly text and reflect on your own, um, so you can find that, there might be a link on the screen and there might not be, um, but if you have questions about that or you want that, uh, it's, it's linked weekly in our YouTube streams, it's linked in our newsletter called The Scoop, which comes out on Friday, and you're welcome to ask any of the staff about where you can find that as we get started this morning I, I just um, I wanted to take a minute to just say how much I love this church community um, we've had a hard weird couple of years and um, I I very much feel and know that we're still trying to figure out who we are after or in the midst still of a pandemic and a time of physical separation um, I think we're all trying to figure out our, ourselves um, we've got some new folks which is fantastic. Um, And I I also know that a lot of us haven't been able to have regular interactions with one another in a long time, Um, but I wanna name that I'm grateful to be worshiping together, to have the privilege to be able to be studying scripture together, both in this format on Sundays and throughout the week in our small groups and even in our more organic individual interactions. Um, I also wanna just say um, outright how grateful I am to stand and preach at our little podium pulpit here in this cafeteria. Um, I don't take the call and responsibility to open up the scripture and my life with you all lightly. Um, I think it's safe to assume that the rest of the preaching team would probably say the same thing. Um, When we come together on Sundays, it is a unique kind of gathering for for us in our rhythm. And I want to say that Sundays don't make up the whole of our church community and what we're about, um, but they are a very significant part of our rhythm. And as a church, it's both our task and our privilege to worship together, to engage in liturgy and scripture together in this particular way. So I, I'm grateful to be doing that with you all this morning, with you all this morning. Um, so as we continue to do that, let me, let me pray for us. God, this morning, uh, I ask that... Um, that your word would bear fruit in us. I ask God that uh, the gaps between um, context and the gaps uh, in my own preparation, the things that we are all carrying in with us this morning, uh, God, I know that you see all of those things, um, that you hold them all. We ask, Lord, that we would be able to recognize you and your movement in your word, and in one another, and in our interactions with one, other, with one another this morning. I pray, God, that um, what needs to be heard is heard, and what doesn't falls away. We lift this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, our passage today that Emma read, um, also, can I just say, Emma Bell will be hyping me up. She just hyped me up this morning. Feels so good. Thank you, Emma. Our passage today is from the third chapter of Mark. So if you're just joining us, we're going to be working our way through the entire Gospel of Mark um, in three parts over the next year-ish or so. So again, this first part of the series is going to take us up to Easter and into Chapter 6 of the book. And I'm really excited. I I just really enjoy going through whole books like this as a church. I think that it gives us... um, as we, as we go through a book together over a longer period of time, it's just, it's just different than like one-off sermons or even like a more abbreviated sermon series because I think that we have a chance to together look at and engage with both the bigger themes of the book and dive into more details in individual passages. And we don't always get that opportunity. Um, our anchor verse for this series is uh, in chapter 1 of Mark, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And this verse, we want this verse to guide us as we go through this book. It prompts us to ask some questions as we move through it together. Questions like, what is the good news? What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to believe? These are big, big questions um, this is what we want to be thinking about as we read and as we engage with Scripture together. So, so far in Mark, we've seen Jesus launch very quickly into his earthly ministry. Mark doesn't waste any time. In the first three chapters, Jesus has done a lot. So he's cast out unclean spirits. He's performed multiple miraculous healings. He's gone to head-to-head with the religious leaders who are called scribes or Pharisees. And even in just these first three chapters, we're already seeing this bigger narrative. We're seeing some themes emerge here in the Gospel of Mark. We're seeing that the kingdom of God is on the move in unexpected ways and that it's facing opposition. And that opposition is coming both from human beings and also from another kingdom. Jesus and Mark is depicted as an agent, like a capital A agent of the kingdom of God and bringing the kingdom to bear on the world. The author of Mark is really intentional in the way that they tell this story, which is fun and sometimes frustrating, but it's a good reminder to us at this point to remember that all the gospel accounts were written to do more than just record the church's memories about Jesus. They're more than that. They're all of them are written to certain contexts of people with specific needs, with specific issues and specific understandings of both the gospel and of their own culture. Mark's narrative, we've talked about this before, but it's, it's likely that um, it was written to a group of early Christians and um, it was his gospel was an attempt to maybe jolt them out of complacency, to remind them of who Jesus is, to remind them of who Jesus is and therefore what it truly means to follow him. And this is a word for us too. There's a word for us here too. So when I preached a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that um, one literary feature in the Gospel of Mark is called a Markan sandwich. Um, This is my favorite, probably because it's food related, Um, but I love this. I love that there's uh, this, this literary feature that you find through the Gospel of Mark. And today is the first time, um, that it, that this technique is used, which is so exciting. Um, so in a Mark and sandwich, it's kind of what you think it is. The author of Mark will start a story and then will seemingly interrupt it with like another unrelated story before finishing with the first one. So you kind of get this sandwich and they use this strategy to emphasize a particular theological theme or a point in the middle of the sandwich. In our text today, the narrative starts out with Jesus back at home. He's being challenged by his family, by the religious leaders that are there. and then, But then in verse 23, it changes and he tells this parable about kingdoms and households. And then it comes back to where it started in verse 31 and finishes with Jesus addressing uh, his family and the people that are with him. So the bread of today's sandwich is is this narrative and the the question around the definition of family. And then at the center of the sandwich is this power struggle. And the center, and you're gonna see this in other Mark and Sandwiches that come, the center will come to inform how we're to view the whole sandwich itself. It's the meat of the sandwich. And here, the author of Mark is saying, remember. Remember that there is a power struggle going on. The announcement that the kingdom of God is near is not just about a new beginning. It's not just about an inauguration. It certainly is that. But it's also about the end of the reign of an opposing kingdom. So the reign of God is coming to displace an opposing dominion that has taken up residence in the world. And the opposing kingdom is not about to relinquish that power without a fight we find ourselves in the middle of a clash of opposing powers. And in this passage, uh, the opposing power, the opposing kingdom is named as belonging to Satan or Beelzebub. So there are three names that are used to describe the ruler of the opposing kingdom in this part of the text. So there's Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, that's the second one, and Satan. And there are other places in the, in the New Testament that also use the Greek word that's translated as devil. So all these words, uh, devil, the Hebrew word Satan, the Aramaic root of the name Beelzebul, they all share this same meaning of the adversary, the accuser, the slanderer. That's what they all mean at their root. And they're used in this passage to name the ruler of the opposing kingdom that is clashing with the kingdom of God. Throughout Mark, we see Jesus going toe-to-toe with this adversary in multiple forms. So the first miracle that Jesus performs in Mark is delivering a person from an unclean spirit. That's number one. That's intentional. And a few verses before this, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. From the beginning, from this quick beginning, we're to be reminded of this adversarial force were to be reminded and recognize the ways in which Jesus comes up against it. Jesus' pronouncement that the kingdom has come near, in our anchor verse, it's not just this proclamation, it also sparks action. Jesus immediately begins to engage with and set right things that are not right. From the beginning, he casts out unclean spirits. He heals people from diseases. He includes those that are excluded. In Mark, we see a Jesus who is not pleased that people are in bondage. We see a Jesus who is not pleased that people are subject to illness, that people are not able to thrive, that they're not able to live fully into the kind of life that God intends. And as an agent of the kingdom, he begins to do something about it. Jesus' actions, Jesus' ministry is pushing back against Satan's kingdom. And this begins to disrupt things jesus is seen as a disruptor and that brings us to our text today today we can see the reactions of people around jesus to this kingdom disruption to these divine disruptions so jesus is back in his hometown he's causing chaos by drawing a big crowd They've all heard about his miracles, they've heard about his teachings, and they're surrounding him so much so that the text says that he could not eat. In verse 21, when his family heard about the crowd, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. So first we see his family's reaction. His family's reaction to Jesus being back home and drawing this crowd was to assume insanity. Jesus was not only disrupting the town by drawing crowds, he was also functioning outside of the familial and societal expectations that his family would have held him to. And they assume that he's lost his mind. The religious leaders, named here in our passage today as the scribes, also react to Jesus here. And they just go straight for it. They directly accuse Jesus of being associated with Satan in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. I think it's important to note here that the religious leaders are not questioning Jesus' ability. They're not accusing him of being fake or of sorcery or some kind of trickery. At this point, they've been witnesses to his healings. They've seen him cast out demons. They know that he can do it. They can't deny Jesus's power. So instead they try to undermine it by accusing him of working by the power of the adversary. And in a way, honestly, this also might be what Jesus's family is doing too, because insanity or mental illness were often associated in that time with demon possession. See this attempt to associate Jesus with the opposing kingdom. And Jesus's ministry is disruptive. It's revolutionary. It's a shock to the system. When God's kingdom comes up against the kingdom of the adversary, there is conflict. There's disruption, there's interruption, and there's going to be a reaction. The scribes try to undermine Jesus. His own family tries to restrain him. The Greek word that's used here could also be translated as seize, arrest, or apprehend. His family is trying to apprehend him. It's like they're saying, for the sake of familial and religious order, this Jesus who is causing disruption should be restrained and detained. The disruption to the system is too much. We should rein it in. It needs to be domesticated. And there's a question here for us. Where do we try to undermine the gospel? How do we try to domesticate it? How do we try to make it fit within our societal, our familial, our religious norms? Where does the status quo work for us? Or even more, where does it work in our favor? Jesus has not come to uphold the current order, but in fact he's come to free us from it. Jesus names this outright in the parable that he responds to the scribes with. This is verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. And he called to them, spoke to them in parables, and said, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end is come. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. So in this parable, Jesus names the power struggle and his mission outright. In this parable, the adversary is the strong man in the house. Actually, the use of the name Beelzebul for Satan in this text might be a play on words here too. It can be translated as Lord of the house. The strong man, the Lord of the house, is motivated to keep his house in order. The strong man has every reason to think that in his own strength, he can keep an outsider out. I think it's right to compare Satan here to a strong man. Evil does seem to have a strong foundation to stand on in the world. That hasn't changed. But even as the scribes seek to undermine Jesus and his family seeks to restrain him in this parable, Jesus is making clear who is really being detained. If the strong man is tied up, the house can be plundered, but who is stronger than Satan? Mark has already answered this question for us in chapter one, verse seven. John the Baptist proclaims that the one who comes after him is the stronger, more powerful one. Satan is strong but Jesus is the one with the power to tie up the strong man in order to free the house. In this parable, Jesus simultaneously describes his own mission, and he also rejects the scribe's assessment of the source of his authority and power. He makes it plain in verse 28. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Jesus is turning the religious leaders' accusations on their head by calling back their first interaction with him in chapter two. So as you might remember, in chapter two, a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus does is proclaim to him that his sins are forgiven. And the first reaction that the scribes have to Jesus in the entire Gospel of Mark is an accusation of blasphemy. Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Blasphemy was a damning accusation. And the scribes certainly knew that when they made the accusation, and Jesus responds just as strongly here in order to make this point. These couple of verses have historically been a little controversial. Um, they're often labeled as defining what is the one unforgivable sin. Many hours have been spent trying to figure out, understand what Jesus means here, and many hours have been spent throughout history uh, worrying over whether the one unforgivable sin has been committed. Now, I, I won't go through all of that history today, um, and... I'm gonna say up front, I can't turn out an answer that solves all the mysteries surrounding these verses. Let's say that up front. But what I do want to do is I, I wanna encourage us to remember the context in which this was said, which is this particular encounter with the religious leaders. And I want us to remember the greater context of the gospel of Mark. So a good working definition of blasphemy is, might be, the act of claiming the attributes of a deity, either for yourself or someone else. The act of claiming the attributes of a deity, either for yourself or someone else. Both Jesus and the scribes would be recalling one of the Ten Commandments when they were talking about this. In Exodus 20, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Blasphemy is misattributing the work of God to someone else. It's to use speech that defames God. It's claiming something that God does is done by something or someone else. It's claiming that the Lord of the house is anyone but Jesus. And it's here that we recognize what one commentary I read this week said, that perhaps it's not that God is unwilling to forgive, but that the person engaged in this act is unwilling to receive the forgiveness. The one who insists on being lord of the house becomes complicit in the the oppression of themselves and of other people. They become complicit with the adversary and the accuser who stands in opposition to the freedom of God. Theologian Juan Lois Segundo puts it very plainly. The blasphemy resulting from bad apologetics will always be pardonable. What is not pardonable is using theology to turn real human liberation into something odious. The real sin against the Holy Spirit is refusing to recognize with theological joy some concrete liberation that's taking place before one's very eyes. Forgiveness is a part of our healing. Forgiveness is a part of our liberation. And those that are determined to be in a house where Jesus is not Lord are not free to receive it by their own choice. The last piece of the Markin sandwich, the second piece of the bread, defines who's in the family of God. It defines those that are in Jesus' household, in the house where Jesus is Lord. This is verse 31. Then his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside, and they're asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Biological familial ties are important, but they are not what make up the household of God here. Who's in the family of God? It's those that recognize the divine disruptions for what they are, that they are the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. They're those who see the strong man as the imposter and recognize that Jesus comes as a thief in the night, not to destroy, but to take back what is rightfully his from the one who's out to accuse, from the one who has done the stealing. Those who recognize that the kingdom of God is near are Jesus's mother and brother and sisters. Sometimes in my sermon preparation, maybe you do this too, but one of the things that I do is sometimes is take the time to recognize which character or group of people in a particular story I resonate with the most that day or that week or in that season. Sometimes it's the main character, I will admit. I mean, I always want it to be Jesus. Um, But if I'm being honest, it's usually not. Um, Or if it is, then it shouldn't be. Um, Sometimes it's the religious leaders who are deeply offended by Jesus' challenges to them. I feel like that's more often than not. Um, Sometimes it's the disciples or the crowd who just like have no idea what's going on. Maybe that one's actually the the one that's more common for me. No idea what's going on. This week, though, uh, as I was thinking about this, kind of doing this exercise, uh, the, the character, the people that I identified with the most are are unwritten in this story. I identified the most with the members of the house who are being held by the strong man. They're waiting and hoping for the stronger one to come and tie up the strong man. And if I'm being honest with you, the past couple weeks have been a little bit of a struggle. I was surprised, I think, that this is what I immediately resonated with. And I think it's because these past couple of weeks I've been looking for hope, looking for a reason to say, keep going, keep going. The stronger one has come. The strong man seems strong, but there is one that's stronger. And that's been hard for me the past couple of weeks. I think in these past couple of years, something that we say a lot has been, things are not the way that they should be. Maybe that's the one thing that we can all agree upon. Things are not the way that they should be. It's difficult to deny that things are wrong. We've come through a pandemic. We're experiencing layers of grief and loss. There's been violence against people of color, widespread frustrating injustice, and that's not even naming the individualized circumstances that I know have burdened so many of you with trauma and loss, depression, illness, just any kind of pain. And the author of this gospel would have been aware of the way the world was, it was not how it should be when he was writing this too. The way the sandwich is built out almost certainly was meant to address the ways in which these early Christians had massive opposition from their families for their faith. We can't deny that there are things wrong in the world. We can't deny that there are things wrong in us. The adversary is claiming to be lord of the house and he is strong and his lies feel like the truth. What's harder though to say and believe, the harder thing than things aren't the way that they should be is saying it doesn't have to be the way that it is. That's the harder thing. But that's the hope of the gospel. Hope is not merely this notion that someday everything will be better, and so we just hold out, like we wait it out for a day in the future. I really think that's where the Christian faith, in many ways, has gotten it wrong. We don't just sit around and wait. That's not what hope is. Hope is that there's a reason to fight. The disruptions are proof that the kingdom of God is near now. And the good news is that Jesus is Lord of the house. He is the stronger one. He ties up the strong man so that he can steal, kill, and destroy and accuse no more. And the power of evil has not disappeared. Jesus still casts out demons. Jesus is still confronted by the power of the strong man. But ownership of the house has already been decided. And Jesus is in the business of liberation. Jesus is the stronger one. Friends, I want you to hear this morning that the good news here is that God is not far off. God is here in the struggle. I want you to listen and hear this differently. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near to you. The kingdom of God is near to us that there is a struggle, that there are disruptions, that is good news. It means the kingdom of God has come near and is bringing to bear its power as the stronger one. I read one pastor summarize the good news in this passage of Mark this way. Even when good institutions like family and religious order are arrayed against the thriving of human beings, the good news invites us into the central gospel struggle, which is already begun with Jesus. That there is a struggle is good news. It reminds us that the kingdom of God is near. The workings of the spirit of God have no bounds. The workings of the opposing spirits are limited. They are finite. Their strength and their power, while they are very real, come to an end. The kingdom of God is near. I want you to hear it and think about that differently. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. This, just like the song we just sang, this is how we fight our battles. We fight knowing that Jesus is Lord of the house and that Jesus is Lord of all. Would you pray with me this morning? God, um, there's so much in this passage. Um, there's a lot going on in me, and just um, it is hard, God, to remember that you are the stronger one, that you are the more powerful one. I confess to you that um, the words of the enemy, the voice of the way the adversary looks and sounds often feels like reality. Uh, And I often choose to believe that. God, I ask that by your spirit that we would recognize where you are, that we would recognize lies as lies, that we would recognize the workings of the opposing spirit in our lives, in our church, God, in our city, and that we would join you in coming up against this power. God, show us how to be disruptors in the name of Jesus. God, move with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.